Yesterday, a great spectacle occurred in Bristol, Tennessee, as a racetrack was transformed into one of the largest football venues ever seen. Through the process of 10 days of intense work and transformation, Bristol Motor Speedway welcomed an attendance at last night's football game of over 150,000 people. As the announcers were doing some overlays for some size comparison, you could fit two baseball stadiums in there with room to spare. There was, at one point during the broadcast, a sign. The camera panned past it, and it said, The Last Great Coliseum. The year was 64 A.D. Mid-year. Another Colosseum stood over the horizon. This Colosseum able to seat 200,000. Eventually, it would be expanded to accommodate 300,000. Along this same time, the Apostle Peter had been penning a letter. And we don't know for sure if this is what actually happened or not. But scholars look at 1 Peter chapter 4, and they see this beautiful arcing ascription of praise to God, a benediction in keeping with how letters would have been closed in that day. And in 1 Peter 4.11 Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. It could have been that that was the end of Peter's letter. But something happened. Something caused Peter by the Spirit to pick up his writing implement and set um, and set words to parchment yet again. You see, in 64 A.D., on an unassuming morning in Rome, smoke began to come up and fill the horizon near this grand and glorious Colosseum. And then in other parts, other provinces, smoke, fire, flame. All of a sudden, Rome was burning. And Nero, the emperor, was said to have been clearing space for a personal building project. As legend holds it, 
Nero was singing and making melody while Rome burned. And Peter picks up the pen yet again and sets pen to page. And in verse 12, he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you are in Christ's sufferings. Later in 1 Peter chapter 5, he says, Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. You see... That same Colosseum that would eventually seat the hundreds of thousands would play host to a most despicable game where Christians were set into the the arena and chased by lions and killed. Peter, seeing all these things unfold, now is beginning to um, move quickly in discipling and teaching and unpacking and showing those who are following him all the things that he saw and all the things that he witnessed when he was a disciple of Jesus the Christ. It was in these fires and in these storms that the church experienced in the persecution in Rome that eventually Paul and Peter would lose their life. But the movement would not. Because the word of God, pointing to the living word of God, would go forward. At the end of his letter, Peter says, By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, that would have been code for Rome. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. John Mark wasn't an apostle in the sense that he was one of the 12. But John Mark, as we trace his lineage through Acts, as we look at the timelines and the encounters, as we listen to the voice of church history and church fathers who knew, whose grandparents knew the apostles, we recognize that Mark was the scribe, the secretary of the apostle Peter. He heard every word that Peter said and spoke about this Jesus that broke onto the scene out of obscure Nazareth in order to save God's people. This Peter who went to the tomb and saw it empty. This Peter who knew 
as the flames licked the horizon, that persecution was coming and coming quickly for the church. This Peter entrusted words to Mark. And so it is with that attention that we turn to the gospel of Mark in the first chapter to hear these words from Peter through Mark about this Christ who invites us to be just as scandalized as those in his day were, to be just as stunned as those in his day were, and to be just as awestruck at the mystery and the marvel of our great God who seeks and saves his people. Stand with me as we read Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 13. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his paths. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. This, beloved, is God's word. Pray with me. Father, as we hear your word, as we look to it, as we ask you by your spirit to open it to our um, open it to us, so that our eyes may see and our ears may hear, and our hearts may be both understanding and moved in greater love and affection to you. We pray, O oh God, that you would do what only you can do, which is shoot a straight shot with a crooked arrow such as this one. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Seated. Some have said that the, uh, that the gospel of Mark is a pamphlet for those in hard times. And you'll notice as we go throughout this gospel that Mark has, has very little interest in anything else other than just the facts. There's not a lot of embellishment. There's not a lot of segue There's a lot of, and immediately, and immediately. It's one of Mark's favorite phrases. He says it over and over and over again. Because what he wants to do 
is record for us this biography of Jesus as it was spoken to him by Peter under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that this faithful witness, this faithful testimony might be carried out and carried to the world so that those who are being persecuted and those who are being tortured and those who are being killed, they might know that this is real, that Jesus came, this unsuspecting, simple Galilean from Nazareth, this carpenter's son, comes onto the scene. What Mark does in this prologue to his gospel is actually begins a completely new literary genre. Up until this point, an evangel, a gospel, something of good news was something that was written as a commemorative for an emperor's birthday or some other event. But no, Mark's gospel, now completely new in the type of literature that it is, is a story of a grand and glorious hero. One who is is to be believed and one who is to be listened to. This hero... And this story has a forward look to it. It's not about something that is isolated and done in the past that we should simply acknowledge and move on with. Mark wrote this in order to communicate to us that this thing, this gospel, this good news, this announcement of Jesus Christ is perpetual and ongoing because in Christ's coming, God has broken in, has broken years, hundreds and hundreds of years of silence, and has come onto the scene so that we might know that he is Lord, and he is God, and he is King, and he is love. And so we find here words from the prophets pointing us to a new prophetic voice. Jesus' cousin, um, we know he's his cousin because of uh, what Matthew tells us. Jesus' cousin comes onto the scene and is the stuff that legends are made of. He's brash. He's a man of the wild. He gives Bear Grylls a run for his money. (laughs) Survival show, he's got this covered. Locusts and wild honey are his food. A prophet's clothing his garb. Because John is now the announcement out of silence that says something is happening and it is eminent and it is near. John comes onto the scene and breaks in. There are several pronouncements that happen in these first 13 verses of Mark's gospel. Some of them are said and some of them are done. The first pronouncement is John, who appeared in the wilderness and proclaimed a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, this is 
this is interesting. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of weird things happening here. And we have to do a little bit of work here in order to understand some of the significance of what Mark is saying. Because otherwise, we just sort of glaze over these things. Here's the first thing I want you to see. Geography has always mattered in the Bible. If you remember uh, some months ago when we preached a sermon out of the book of Jonah, and it said that Jonah went east. Bad things happen when you go east. In the garden, Adam and Eve were banished and, the, and they were sent out to the east. In the Exodus, the wilderness was a place of God's mercy, but also God's judgment. Geography matters, and it need not be lost on us this day that Mark was recording some very specific things And because he doesn't say a lot, it's easy to miss them. So John, here he is, out by the Jordan River, baptizing and offering a baptism of repentance. Now, why would you do this? Ordinarily, if one was to be baptized, it was a a non-Jew or someone else that would be brought in kind of through the waters of baptism, and this would be a way of initiation, Nobody wanted to go to the wilderness, by the way. For the Jewish people, bad stuff happens in the wilderness. But there was also an abiding hope. There was an abiding hope that Messiah would come. And there was an abiding hope that one day, that one day the exodus would happen again. that the exodus would happen again and this time it would lead God's people finally to the place where they are free and where God dwells with his people. So we see John the baptizer. So so much is known about John and, and so much is identified with his act that he did. He's simply known as John the baptizer. He would later get the attention of Herod. For what he did. John, a man of the wild, a man uh, who performed his ministry of baptism in the wilderness, and he's the one who announced that there was one who was greater than he who would come. John invited everyone to come and prepare because something was happening and it was close and it was imminent. But here's the thing. We oftentimes have misunderstandings about what baptism is at all. Many of us grew up in a, uh, in a church culture that saw baptism as a response to something. And while no, no doubt it is that, for those who are outside of Christ, coming into Christ, baptism is a response to that faith in Jesus Christ. But baptism is more than that. It's more than response. It's identification. Baptism is identification. And that's really significant. Because look, John was offering a baptism of repentance. Those 
coming to be baptized, we're receiving that baptism. But it was, it was more than this. John was in the wilderness. He was calling Israel once more to leave godlessness, to leave comfort, and come again to the wilderness. It's interesting. Because in Exodus... When God rescued his people from Pharaoh's tyranny and God opened the waters of the Red Sea and brought Israel across the Red Sea, collapsed the waters down on Pharaoh's army, that moment in Israel's history is noted by Paul as Israel's baptism. You can see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. Paul said that Israel at that moment received a baptism because they were, they were in, in the cloud and in, in passing through that cloud, they were baptized, they were identified, they were set apart as God's people. And John preached, and he said, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Don't forget the humility of Jesus later in his ministry as though John said, I am not worthy to stoop and untie his sandals. Jesus stooped and washed the disciples' feet, taking on the servant's, the servant's towel and bowl and cleansing his disciples. But there's more, isn't there? Because as Jesus made the trek from Nazareth to the edge of the Jordan River. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what, has, what, had, what had to have been going through his head as he's going, preparing to undertake this ministry and this mission? Here's what he does. He shows up at the Jordan River. And Mark doesn't record for us what we see in Matthew chapter 3, where Matthew um, records for us confusion, where John is like, I don't, I don't feel good about baptizing my cousin. He doesn't show us any of that. He simply, Jesus is there, and a baptism occurs. But I don't want you to miss this the significance of what was getting ready to happen. John was calling people out of, uh, from Israel to the wilderness. He was calling them to once again go and into the wilderness and confirm their sonship, to go and confirm their obedience, to go into the wilderness and to be tested once more. This is what John was doing. And Jesus shows up and Jesus says, I will take that baptism. What did Jesus have to repent of? 
It said, the text said that, Jesus, that John was offering a baptism of repentance. What did Jesus have to repent of? Nothing. And everything. Jesus said, I will be Israel. I will be Israel. I will take the baptism of repentance. I will go into the wilderness and I will be the one that is tested and I will be the one that is examined and I will be the one that is found faithful, not wanting. Because Israel can't, but I will. Jesus came from no-name Nazareth. This had to have thrown people off. Every good Hebrew was trained to pray for the coming of Messiah. In fact, it was said that if your prayer didn't include a prayer for the coming of Messiah, you haven't actually had a prayer yet. And here comes an obscure Galilean, the son of a carpenter, coming to take Israel's place. And then something amazing happens. Because at the waters of the Jordan, as Jesus is baptized by John, at that moment, the heavens open. And a voice is heard. This, this is my son whom I love. This, Mark records for us, this is my, you are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. A benediction, a good word comes at that moment to Jesus at his baptism this good word, this, this, this pronouncement is accompanied by the, the heavens opening and the spirit descending like a dove. Now, some have said that in, in some, in some uh, Hebrew traditions, that the creation account that's recorded for us by Moses in Genesis that also this, this hovering over the deep was, was a fluttering like a dove. Um, so there's even some that would have said in the rabbinic literature that even at creation, there is this beautiful picture of the Trinity even there. But God said at that moment, you are my son, and I'm well pleased with you. One of the problems for us is we forget our baptism. You see, when we make, when we make baptism about this thing that I do, if we, make it a, if we make it a dedication service where we're promising really, really, uh, really stridently to make sure that we're doing everything just right, okay? When we make baptism about our act of obedience— all of a sudden, baptism takes on a weight. And frankly, it becomes a weight that I would rather soon forget about. 
Because when it's all about me and all up to me and all about me living up to the worth of the water and the triune name that was placed on me, look, all I've got to do is just think back 24 hours to all the times I lost my temper, to all the times that I didn't seek the Lord with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, to all the ways I didn't love my neighbor as myself. And I say, I don't want that weight on me. But the waters of baptism are different, aren't they? Because the waters of baptism, God offers his promises to us. And he identifies us as his. And he says, you are mine and I love you. And it is not about our faithfulness, it's about his faithfulness. And it's not about how much we get right. It's about what he has done. Your kid doesn't stop being your kid because they've screwed up umpteen billion times. They look like you. Sorry about that. How many of us miss the voice of the Father and saying, I love you and I'm well pleased with you. And we forget our baptism and we say, I've got this. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about me. I'll be fine. Because here, John's favorite word occurs after this pronouncement of God, the father declaring over his son that he is well pleased with him, that he is well pleased with what he is doing immediately. The spirit takes Jesus to the wilderness. This place of foreboding and this place of testing and this place where every other time Israel has absolutely messed it up. 40 days shouldn't be lost on you or me in terms of significance. 40 days was Moses' time on Mount Sinai and Elijah's time at Mount Horeb. 40 days, a time of significance, a time of testing. Mark doesn't get into the details of what happened. Mark doesn't get into the details of the way that the enemy, that the one who, who hates us and hates Jesus, the ways that Satan came on and tempted Jesus to throw everything away. Mark doesn't record that for us. And I think that's significant because I think in some ways we're being reminded that just because Jesus was tempted acutely in the desert for 40 days, his temptation didn't end. The enemy was not done messing with him. The temptations were not over. You see a picture of animals and angels there with Jesus now, scholars go back and forth on what exactly the wild animals represent. Some of them say the wild animals represent this untamed, untapped, wild and dangerous and foreboding place. Others have said that the wild animals represent shalom. It represents the new kingdom. We have absolutely no idea. But there were angels there too. And the angels didn't intervene. The angels didn't stop the enemy from tempting Jesus, but the angels attended to him. Because let's be clear about this. 
when you are part of God's family, when you are part of God's family, God is never so far away from you. Even in the times you say, I've got this. No, you don't. Jesus heeded John's summons. He, he was sent to the wilderness. This, uh, even though he was beloved, the wilderness was part of his story and ours. The, the wilderness doesn't change his beloved status. Listen, for those of you here today that are going through your own personal wilderness, whatever that is, whatever the uncertainty is, whatever the sadness is, just because wilderness is a part of your story doesn't mean that God doesn't love you. It just means that this place is not the ultimate resting place. Wilderness is the play of dry and dust, of temptation and fatigue. The dry and dusty places Jesus went is so that we would never have to think when we experience the wilderness that we go through, that we are alone, that we are in uncharted territory. Jesus' obedience to God is affirmed and sustained in the wilderness, the precise place where Israel's rebellion had brought death and alienation. Jesus was obedient in order that the new Israel of God might be constituted. Don't miss the geography. Don't miss what's happening here. All the other times that Israel failed, Jesus has said, I won't. I'm going to rescue my people. I'm going to save my people. But we really often forget, don't we? We often forget who we are, and we often forget whose we are. I want to read to you an extended excerpt from... um, some personal reflections by a woman by the name of Lauren Larkin. She said of her own life that if you had been around her in her 20s, she said, quite frankly, I don't know how I'm still alive. All of my choices that I made and all of the bad decisions that I made, I should really be dead. And so here's what Lauren would do. As the grief and the shame took hold, she would get up and she would go and she would turn on her shower as hot as she could stand the water. And she would get in and she would curl up. And in those moments, she would wish that just a drop of that water could actually come in and wash the places deep within inside her that caused her so much shame. Years later, she writes, with a saving faith in God, Through Jesus Christ, she said, those days are a memory until, until that one night at two in the morning, 
all of a sudden, once again, awakened and acquainted with her old friend's disgrace and shame. She said, it was a burden so significant that I could barely breathe from under its weight. I made my way to the shower. I turned the water on as hot as I could stand it and got in and kneeled down and curled up, exposed and vulnerable. I felt the water hitting my back and flowing over my naked and curled up frame. I felt the water stream through my hair and cross over my face. And that old hope from years gone by bubbled up in my heart and mind. Please let this water cleanse me inside and out. But instead of being a silent and fruitless prayer of a disturbed mind and a burdened heart, the words that I actually uttered in that moment were the words that comprised a statement, an affirmation, a remembrance. I turned my face up to the falling water and confessed, please forgive me, Lord, a sinner. And as the water kept hitting me, I was reminded that I had one more thing to say. I am baptized. Every drop of water seemed to provide remembrance that I am baptized. In in recalling the events, in recalling the fact that I am baptized, I am reminded that God's activity has always been towards me, towards us. That it is by himself and his word alone that has given us this new covenant that is signified by baptism and that through this event, I've been purified inside and out and designated as his own. She writes, also in recalling what is received in and through the water of baptism, I am affirming that my old relation to God, who at that point was my enemy, has been put to death, and that I have been reborn into a new relation. God is my friend. Through Christ, by the power of the Spirit, And by sharing in Christ's death and resurrection through the water of baptism, I affirm that I have been grafted into the body of and have union with Christ and thus are given new and true life and are inheritors of the promises of God, the forgiveness of sins. In remembering my baptism, I am brought to the remembrance of this reality, that nothing and no one can separate that which God has joined together. And in this reality of my baptism and my remembrance of it, I am reminded that shame and disgrace have no jurisdiction, and they have no voice, that I have been cleansed from them. She said, as I sat Under that water, pouring down over me, I uttered the phrase, I am baptized, over and over. And as I did, the burden of the weight of my disgrace and shame lifted and lifted until there was only one word left to hear, Christ's word to me, beloved. Jesus has gone into the wilderness so that you and I don't have to fear. It is a dark tunnel, but there is no mistake. There is a light at the end of it. Jesus went to the hard places and the scary places, the desolate places and the dry places. 
so that every time in your life when you are tempted to say, I am beyond the reach and I am beyond the rescue of God, that there might be a different answer that would come thundering down. You are not outside his reach and you are not outside his rescue because he has sent Christ into the world and Christ is God's beloved son. And Jesus has said, and these are all mine too. And that through the waters of baptism and through the faith of God in Jesus Christ that has been sealed in your heart by your spirit, if you are a believer in him, your identity is no longer that of ashamed and no longer that of disgraced. Because he has removed your shame and he has killed your disgrace. And he has showered you with mercy and love and he has declared you beloved. 